Let's open in prayer. Father, again, we sense our weakness and our limitations in being able to adequately present Jesus Christ in all of his glory, all his wondrous glory. And yet, Lord, we thank you that we have the scriptures. Thank you that we have the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that we are able to, by those means, point our hearts to Christ today. And I pray, Father, that you might minister words of hope and encouragement and help to those whose hearts are filled with anguish and sense a need for the Savior's help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the joys that uh, Joyce and I shared last year together was to attend once again a training conference in Lafayette, Indiana, in which a church that hosts this conference of over 1,800 people um, shared about some of the ministries that their church carries on, one of which is a ministry called Vision of Hope. And as you come to the campus of this particular church, you can see what looks like a large two-story building uh, that uh, looks like a large home, really, a gigantic home, actually. And in that home, there's a residential treatment center in which they minister to women who come from such backgrounds that I can't even describe to you the horrors some of these women had endured. They have about 20 women at a time who live there. The church provides this to them for free. They have people who live there in the home and they provide biblical counseling, biblical help, and biblical grace to deal with some of the flashbacks some of the outbursts of anger that these women express having been so mistreated, having been taken advantage of, some of whom had even been enslaved. These women deal with sleeplessness, fears, hopelessness, self-hatred, a sense of nightmares and flashbacks that just ruin every attempt they have to try to get some sleep. They're disconnected oftentimes from reality of not wanting to have to face the horrors that they have been through. And I must say to you, I was just on the edge of my seat listening to the woman walk us through the steps that they try to lead these women through, trying to help them admit what they've been through, help them to to acknowledge what's going on inside of themselves, helping them become vulnerable and frank as they acknowledge the pain and confusion as to why would God allow such a thing talking about how they at some point realize that they are crying and they're dealing with the struggle of having to somehow come to grips with admitting that that they are crying out to God saying, I cannot survive unless God, you help me. Trying to bring them to the point where they can say those kinds of words and turning toward God. Praying that these women would experience the presence of God and they would actually then begin to wait upon God, looking for God to help them looking to God, helping see the larger purposes of what God could have possibly wanted to teach them at this stage in life. And the woman went on to share testimonies of actual women and what they have said versus what they first said when they went in there to what they said at the end and the conclusion of the time when they're graduating and they're getting ready to leave this ministry, talking about how they were now at a point where they've begun to worship God, celebrating the fact that they have entrusted 
they now feel safe enough to entrust themselves fully to God, able to trust God in his larger purposes for them, and to know that he is the one, having walked in darkness in this world, they have seen the light of the gospel enable them then to have hope and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. It was powerful. And what was even more amazing was that these women were the ones who would serve you and offered you to clean up after you after lunch as they were serving and the, the different ones who were attending the conference. And I remember times when my eyes would just tear up just thinking, I didn't say anything, but I'm just thinking, thank you, Lord, this woman is still here. Thank you, somebody loved her enough to help bring words of hope into her life. What do you say to a person who's been living in anguish? What do you say? What words do you offer to an individual who's been walking in deep darkness? Well, then we find that in this text of Scripture we're going to look at this morning, page 824, Isaiah chapter 9. I'd like us to read these first few verses here together, because that is the context of these words. People living in anguish. People who've been walking in deep darkness. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he will make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you will break the yoke of the burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Again, I raise the question, what do you say to a people who've been living in anguish? I would suggest to you there's nothing worse than saying some pious platitudes or flippant phrases about a feel-good philosophy. People who are hurting and people who carry the pain of living in a dark world need something more than a pick-me-up bouquet. People who are enduring anguish of heart and mind and soul, they're looking for someone to give them guidance. They're looking for someone to work with them, giving them direction, someone who can impart to them wisdom to see how do you make sense of all that seems senseless in the world, who will really help them. And I'm convinced that, these God, that God raised up prophets like Isaiah who wrote incredible words of hope 
to people who lived in times in which there was great upheaval. Isaiah wrote in a time when there was political, moral, spiritual, even social and economic upheaval in his land. There were enemy forces ready to attack at any moment. Their political leaders did not rule long, and nor did they provide stability. Where do you find guidance for the darkest hours? Where do we turn for guidance in the dark hours of our own lives? A time in life in which many people in our society today assume that human life no longer has any dignity. Why do we see the increase in random violence? Why do we see the increase in the amount of bloodshed that takes place in our land? I'm convinced it is the fruit of years and years of secularists who have been telling us that we as humans are nothing more than higher forms of animal life. We're nothing more than some sort of combination of chemical machines that function as machines, and therefore we have been removed from any sense in which we have dignity made in the image of God, and life now has lost meaning for most people. They cannot answer the bigger questions of, why am I here? What is the point of human existence? And therefore, I find it quite helpful that our theme for this coming Advent is going to be to point to Jesus Christ. He is, first of all, as we look in this text, again, the answer that God provides to people who live in anguish is not platitudes, it's a person. It is Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor. Well, first of all, what does his name communicate about this wonderful counselor? Well, let me back up and just say that names are highly significant in the biblical times. Most names were selected by parents to convey something about their prospective, I'm sorry, most to communicate something about their, their perspective or their outlook at the time of the birth of that child. Now, today, people usually put their wet finger up in the air and they feel the cultural trends of what names sound cooler, what's popular, what's going to go a nice name for this child the rest of their life. Well, back in biblical times, they would sense what was happening at that moment and they would therefore respond based on that event. And so sometimes things would change as her life was slipping away in childbirth Rachel, who gave birth to this baby boy, named him, as she knew that she was possibly going to die, Son of My Sorrow. How would you want that to be your name? Son of My Sorrow. Well, that child's father, Jacob, after his mother died, renamed the child to have the child's name Benjamin, which means Son of My Right Hand, which means Son of My Most Favored my most favorite son. We also know the biblical times in Acts chapter 4, we found a man there by the name of Joseph. That's his given name, but he received a nickname because he was known to be a person who cared deeply about the people around him and who was involved in offering many forms and different expressions of encouragement to many people again and again. So they began to call him the son of encouragement. His name? Barnabas. His name was very, had great significance. And then there is Naomi. Her name means delightful one. What a nice name that is, delightful one. And yet, after living in Moab at one point in her life, during the years in which she suffered the loss, not only of her husband, but of her two sons 
and her daughter-in-law. She says, I'm changing my name. No longer is it Naomi, it's Mara. Bitter. My name is Bitter. Names mean a lot in the scriptures. And here in this text, verse 6, we find these multiple names of the Messiah. And I'm convinced, again, the names designed to show us and help us understand the blessings that he will provide to his people. These are names that are an accurate description of his character, of his being. And there's only one person who can live up to these names. It is a unique, one-of-a-kind person, unlike anyone we've ever met before or ever will meet, a person who will ever rule, no one will ever be like the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Wonderful Counselor. Well, what does it mean, the significance of the word Wonderful Counselor? Well, some of us are not used to hearing that name that way, and many of us have grown up reading our King James Version of the Bible and other translations in which they list Wonderful, comma, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But here in this particular text of the New American Standard Version, or the ESV, English Standard Version, we find that the title appears together, Wonderful Counselor. And I would prefer that myself because, again, I think he's got a, a literary pattern here. He has a title and then he has a modifier for that title three times in the text. Surely the fourth must repeat the same pattern. Well, what's the question then again? What does the word wonderful, the modifier, mean? It comes from a Hebrew word. Essentially, it means this. It means a phenomenon that lies outside the realm of human explanation. Almost you could say miraculous is a good way of understanding it. it it's that which is separated from the normal course of events. That's what something that's wonderful would be. So we see the word appear several times in scriptures. In Genesis 18, Sarah asks God the question, is anything too wonderful, too miraculous, too amazing for the Lord? It's Jeremiah who uses the term in chapter 32 as he prays to God. He says, O oh Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm, nothing is too wonderful for you. Nothing is too miraculous for you. It is Psalm 139. David talks about the fact that God has such intimate knowledge of all of, about him. And so he says, such knowledge is too wonderful. It's, it's, it's too miraculous. It's too beyond me. He says, it's too high, I cannot attain it. The term then conveys the idea that this promised king is full of wonder. He's marvelous. He's miraculous. He's incomprehensible to man. And then we find here in this text this amazing combination of thoughts and concepts about the one who is being promised, that he is a son who is going to be born, therefore he's human. But in addition to that, he's not a more ordinary human. He's one who can do wonders. He is a wonderful counselor. Therefore, he is God. And while many kings and many rulers surround themselves with various advisors, various uh, sophisticated counselors who are providing to them cons uh, consultation and, and suggestions on what to do and developing a policy, 
Jesus needs no one to counsel him. Because we read in Isaiah 40 that who has become God's counselor? The question is rhetorical. Nobody. Nobody gives God advice. He doesn't need any. This is the one who was sent to rescue fallen humans who left to ourselves are unable to untangle our own knots of sin that are destroying and ruining our lives. We are unable to assemble together the puzzle pieces of life so that our lives make sense apart from Jesus, the wonderful counselor. What is it about his counsel that makes it so wondrous? Point number two. I have three things I'd like to suggest under that heading. Three ways in which his counsel is wondering, wonderful. First of all, it's wonderful in, its, in his understanding as a counselor. One of the difficulties we face when we seek counsel is finding somebody who can understand us. Understand what's going on inside of us. Someone who knows exactly what we're experiencing, what we're dealing with. When we long for someone who can see our situation from our point of view. Someone who knows the issues that we're facing. And Jesus Christ has supernatural insight into the hearts of every single person. Think about that. Now that's a good thing, and that also can be a challenging thing. We read in John chapter 2 that Jesus, when he was with the crowds and he was ministering to them, and he was early on in his ministry speaking truth to the crowd, there were many people who responded in different ways. And the text says that many believed in Jesus' name. And we think to ourselves, that's a good thing, isn't it? Many believed in his name? Well, that's a good thing, but if you find out that belief, come to find out, is not the kind of belief that would indicate a surrendered heart. It was a belief of someone who was just impressed for the moment. Because the text goes on to say that Jesus, on his part, was not, interestingly enough, using the same word for belief, he was not believing in them. In other words, they were saying, oh yes, we believe in you, but he wasn't believing in them. What does he mean? Well, he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, he himself knew what was in each person. What that text is saying at the end of John chapter 2 is that Jesus knew the hearts, he knew the true intentions of those with whom he spoke. And he knew which people in the crowds responded with this shallow, superficial faith. And he knows the difference between those who offer an, an intellectual assent to him, who say, oh yes, I believe that Jesus Christ existed. Even the demons do that, the Bible says. He can distinguish that kind of superficial faith from someone who has a true saving faith, a genuine faith that will arise from a consciousness of their need of forgiveness, of a sense of conviction that Jesus Christ is the only mediator who can provide such forgiveness. And Jesus knows the distinction between our hearts of people who are just going through the motions versus those who truly are repentant, who earnestly feel and understand the weight of their sin and who come in humble faith asking for salvation. Hebrews 4 tells us, there is no creature hidden from God's sight. 
All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. My friend, I can't say that I know anything about what's going on in your heart unless you tell me or unless you talk and explain it. And Jesus knows us inside and out. And Jesus became a man. He lived among us. He is familiar with any situation you may be facing. Not that, not that he walked down the path of sin, but he understands the temptation. He was tempted. He was tested in every way like we are, Hebrews 4. And this person now has such personal knowledge and insight and personal understanding of you and what you are dealing with. What a difference it makes in terms of coming to him for counsel, coming to him to find wisdom to deal with the challenges and the struggles of your heart. Imagine, if you would, for a moment, the, care, the difference between the care received by a child who was being looked after by the government of a particular nation, let's say, and this government chose to house all of these children in a large, large facility, thousands and thousands and thousands of little infants being watched after by government workers. And in this bureaucratic setup, and everything's regulated by certain patterns of what will be followed and what will not be followed in this large industrial style of a nursery. For Imagine the difference between that kind of care and the care of just two parents looking after one child in their home. There's a personal connection. There's a personal understanding. There's a personal interest in, and, and concern for this one child, understanding the child, learning the child, uh, gaining understanding and wisdom and insight into that child's world. Some of us, I think, think that God is so far away and disinterested and uncaring about what happens in the world of your own heart. And the fact is that Jesus is the one who is wonderful in his understanding, in his counsel. He is highly qualified to lead and direct and to guide us. And therefore, we are called to trust him. His understanding is personal. His understanding is complete. The question is, if he is the wonderful counselor who knows us in that way, do you seek his counsel? Do you rely on his wondrous wisdom? Do you follow his guidance? The text of scripture would encourage us to do so as we feel the need and sense our need for his help. But the text also, I would think, would also contain a sense of wondrousness in God's, uh, in Christ's counsel in the fact that he has an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. Jesus, we know from John chapter 1, always existed. There was never a day in which he entered into existence. Prior to his being born in Bethlehem, he already had been in existence from eternity. And so his perspective is not bound by time. My perspective is bound by time. I can only tell you what I can remember. And some of my earliest memories I've been reviewing the fact that when the day when John F. Kennedy was shot, I can still remember some of those memories that's, that's going way back in my mind of some of that I was about six years of age. But there's much of things I've had to learn 
that are prior to my time. I don't know much about those things. I've had people try to explain them to me. But Jesus knows the beginning and the end. And he is fully comprehends the eternal purposes of God. And we read in Scripture, according to Colossians chapter 2, that in Jesus are all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. This means that Jesus can see and understand not only our past actions and our past experiences, but he also understands and sees and understands our future. He knows what lies ahead. He sees the big picture. And his divine, eternal perspective is truly marvelous, miraculous, beyond human comprehension. I find it interesting to know that Jesus knows that the evil one at times desires to sift his disciples like wheat. It is Jesus who knows when we need his interceding help. It is Jesus who knows what it's like to entrust himself to God in the midst of suffering, because Jesus himself suffered, entrusting himself to God as he was unjustly dealt with. It is Jesus who knows the power of God that defeated the evil one. He knows the blessings of obedience. He knows the joys and eternal pleasures at the right hand of God, the Father. And he knows what lies ahead. And therefore, it's interesting in Jesus' ministry that he spends time speaking to the future issues of life. So that he says in, for example, Mark chapter 9. Let's look that up. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Page 1199 in your pew Bible. Jesus knows what is ahead, and therefore he devoted significant amount of warnings of, you better be careful here, there's a danger up ahead if you don't do something about this area of life. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 to 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy, be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. For if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If it is better for you to enter in crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, verse 45, and cut it off, it is better to enter life lame than having two feet and being cast into hell, verse 47. If your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to having two eyes be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Do you realize it's Jesus who speaks and warns of hell far more often than anywhere else in the Bible? It's from the lips of Jesus, the wonderful counselor who knows the eternal perspective. He sees and understands there's a real danger of eternal damnation if you do not deal with sin or show the desire to deal with the sin in your life and you have no desire to flee from that and you've not come to Christ, he says, you better watch it. He does that in love, but he speaks from an eternal perspective. It is also Jesus, on the other hand, who knowing the future will speak words of motivation and words that were given at the right moment to try to help people avoid making a foolish investment that would be worth nothing. 
don't know about you, but I wish my great-grandfather had somebody in his life giving him good advice and counsel from a very from a whole different perspective than the one he followed during his life. Henry Clay Musser, I have learned as I've gone through the family tree, inherit, had a very significant inheritance from my great-great-grandfather, John Musser, and he took whatever wealth was coming to him and followed whoever gave him such crazy advice to go down, leaving the area of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and he drove and went down his, I guess he got on the wagon, and the horses, and he went down to, to Virginia and bought up land, prospecting for minerals. Someone convinced him there is lots of money to be made somewhere in the mountains of Salem, Virginia. Guess what? He started a number of corporations, and what do we find? A bunch of pieces of paper with corporate uh, uh, stocks worth not even the value of the old piece of paper we had in our hands. He lost it all. He lost all of his wealth. And my grandfather grew up on a farm that was mortgaged to the hilt. And guess what my grandfather's told me? If he told me once, he told me 50 times. Save your money, grandson. Save your money. Don't spend everything you earn. He had a different perspective. What does Jesus say regarding the eternal perspective? When it comes to handling the things we really are looking to for true, lasting value. He says in Matthew chapter 6, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's telling you how to invest for the future in something that will have lasting future. Store up treasures in heaven. Why? Because it's not going to be destroyed. Nobody can steal it. And it will always have an increase in value. In our world today, there's a lot of different perspectives that seem to say live for the moment. Live with a maxed out credit card, buying things you didn't need that won't last, that only burden your life with more junk. The question is, are we listening to Jesus' warnings and counsel regarding the eternal perspective which he has accurate understanding on? If you were lost in the Adirondacks or some other mountain range, I've never really climbed up there, but it's a beautiful part of the world to be climbing. If you're wandering around and you're lost in the Adirondacks, somehow you can't find the trail, and you come up to somebody who, who you're, you see them on the trail, or they, they hear you and they've come and they're yelling at you from the trail, and they say, that they have a GPS or they have a map in your hands, are you going to turn away and ignore that person and think you're going to find your way on your own? Or are you going to say, I'm with you, man. Rest of the way, I'm with you. I'm following you wherever you go. Those who know Jesus as the wondrous counselor, who knows the end from the beginning, they're the ones who say, I want to trust him. His counsel is 100% accurate. I can rely on it enough that I'm going to invest fully in it and follow him no matter what he says. I'm going to take it to heart. That kind of counsel is worth heeding because of his eternal perspective. It's wondrous. It's wondrous. Thirdly, his counsel is wondrous in wisdom. I just want to briefly touch on this. 
And I've included in this thought a, a quote from J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God. And in this book, Packer explains what he means by the wisdom of God. He says that the wisdom is the power to see and the inclinations to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining that goal. And my friends, the cross of Christ is a most excellent example of the wisdom of God. Here the king's wisdom on a human level the crucifixion of Jesus is a horrific example of cosmic injustice. How outrageous that a perfectly innocent person would be made to die and be done in such a way that he's dying on behalf of somebody else. There is absolutely wrong. A travesty of justice. A just person dying in the place of unjust rebels. And yet the innocent, spotless Lamb of God offered for sinners himself to rescue them from the curse of sin. And to the Jews, to have a crucified, disgraced Messiah was a stumbling block that many of them tripped over and still do even to this day. And to Gentiles, a crucified Savior, unable and unwilling to save himself, is what they would call moronic, which is what the word foolishness really means in the Greek. Crucified, the crucifixion of Christ is an example of the best means on the part of God to arrive at his glorious goal of reconciling sinners to a holy God while magnifying the glory of his grace. It is the wisdom of Christ that ought to cause us to be filled with wonder how God in Christ confounds the world and its wisdom. God took the disgraceful, unjust death of Jesus on the cross and the viewed on a human level, and he elevated it to be the core of the power of the gospel by which we are saved. So that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that to those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. God does not always reveal to us the whys and wherefores of while, while we're still in this world of how he works. He has revealed it in the cross, but there are many other ways that we cannot see how God's wisdom is being unfolded and played out. But we can trust Jesus as the one who is all-wise. We can trust him as the one whose ways and whose means of making us into the image and ultimately into the image of Christ is ultimately for our good and for his glory. Therefore, as we said last week, and I'm going to say it again because we all need to hear it again and again, if we know God in Christ as the wondrous counselor, then it's going, to, it's going to feed into a learning to trust him as the one who works all things together for good, to those who love him, called according to his purpose. We can trust God that if he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, that is, those of us who are sinners, his enemies, if he did that for his enemies, how will he, def he will definitely then generously give us everything we need to bring us to conformity to his son. My friend, you hang on to that promise when life doesn't make sense to you and you're struggling in a world that seems like it's 
falling off the tracks. You hang on to promises like that because the cross reveals to us the wisdom of God, which points us back to the wondrous counselor who says, I can take the worst of things and I can use them for good. Including the statement that was given regarding Joseph and his brothers, which again, what the, the statement was made, you intended it for evil. That was their intention. But God said he intended it for good. And the wisdom of God is what helps us rely on that understanding of how God operates in this world. And the cross is the only way, the only prism through which we can see and make sense of that reality. Well, that brings me then to my final point here. How are we going to respond to this wondrous king and counselor? Here we need to be careful because Jesus said in John 7, anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or merely on my own. God does not reveal his counsel to the curious and the careless. He reveals his will to those who are consecrated. If we think to ourselves, well, I'm just going to see if I really like what uh, I'm being told to do here. I'm just going to see if I really you know, like what God wants me to do. If I like it, then I'll do it. And so we sort of deal with God of this conditional way of approaching him, being reserved in whether or not we are going to commit ourselves to following in his ways. My friend, we need to humble ourselves before God if we're going to receive the benefits of Jesus' wondrous counsel. Is that the counsel you really want? Are you willing to be patiently waiting for that counsel? There's a lot of waiting in the Christian life. Waiting for God to help bring about the working out of His purposes in our life. Those things cannot be accomplished in many ways, in many situations, quickly. It takes time. It teaches patience. You don't learn patience in five seconds. And so many of the disciples, we read in the scriptures, John 16, there are many other things that Jesus wanted to tell them and, and reveal to them, but they could not bear them at that moment. And so sometimes Jesus has delays in his homework assignments meant to rid us ultimately of impatience and impulsiveness. I guess the real question here this morning is, like the women who entered into that hope of vision, vision of hope house there on the campus of that ministry in Lafayette, Indiana. Do those women trust those that are working with them? I think by the time they went through all those year, months and months of living with them and seeing them at their worst and trying to speak in their life and show them the love of Christ and counsel them, at some point I think they'll learn to say we ultimately are willing to trust these women. Well, do you trust Christ completely? the wondrous one who bled and died, who rose again, that you might be justified, that you might be sanctified, that you might be glorified. I urge you to rely entirely upon him and his work on the cross as a way of understanding how he works in your life. Stand upon his word. He says, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into the judgment, has passed out of death into life. So may it be true of us that we would respond as Peter responded. Lord, to whom 
would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we again pray that you might help us to be willing to humbly admit and acknowledge our brokenness apart from you. Help us to be truthful in acknowledging that we are a people who are indeed in great anguish, whose lives would only be in darkness if it were not for the light of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bring many of us tonight, today, into a place in which we gain a new appreciation of the wondrousness of the wonderful Counselor, Jesus. Help us, Father, to see him through the, a, a new and a fresh way of realizing that he understands and knows all about us. Only he can have a perspective on our lives that knows the beginning from the end. And for some of us, Lord, we, we've been trying to resist doing what he's been calling us to do, We've been putting it off. We've been giving excuses. We've been avoiding dealing with the things that we know that you as the wonderful counselor has been calling us to do. I pray today, Lord, this might be a day of surrender, a day to come to the cross and say, Lord Jesus, I surrender all. I submit myself to your counsel. I yield to your insight and your wisdom and your ways, learning to trust you anew and afresh and finding in you life and joy and peace and assurance that you do work all things together for good. Lord, may that time of true surrender happen as we gather around your table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.